I always look forward to this um, 40, 45 minutes every single week uh, because Carlos comes in and we talk. We have a schedule of things we're going to have a chat about. We generally find ourselves off topic pretty quickly. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, mate. Good to see you. It's you're, to you're, see you're glowing you. today. Yeah, it's, the, it's the Noosa, the Noosa glow. Absolutely. Yeah, the post-Noosa Looking glow. fit and raring to go. You've got it's, the golf club almost... Uh, you know, well, I play welded a, to your hands. If you want to have a quick game of golf, as good a golf course and a magnificent facility as Noosa Springs is, if you want to have a quick game of golf in the twilight at this time of the year up there, mm. don't go to Noosa Springs. You <laughs> find yourself behind some very slow players very quickly. But don't. That's enough of that. Yeah. We're wasting time because you have brought absolute royalty into the studio with us today, and I. I I can't even look at him without starting to <laughs> sort of stutter. So perhaps you might um, do the introduction better than I. Well, he's a man that I, I harangue, I've harangued for 30 years. I think the first interview we did with Craig was when we first did community radio back in 1993. And we harangued him for years. Uh, always low profile, very humble sort of a guy. And eventually he relented and, and gave us a, a go. And then for, since that time, I've sort of pursued him all around the world. And then whenever he's in Melbourne, I grab him. And bring him back to Australia, of course, it's a legend of Australian football. Probably the trailblazer with Joe Marsden all those years ago in the 50s. But uh, Craig Johnston is, is the man, uh, the Liverpool legend. And I know a lot of people out there are very thrilled to have him in the, in the city, uh, especially for the ICC tournament. Lovely to see you. Thanks for coming in for a chat. <laughs> nice to see you, Ralph, and nice to meet you, Andy. It's well, Ra- Ralph's our producer. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually Carlos Alberto oh, Diego. Sorry, Carlos. When he walks through that door, <laughs> he becomes someone else. I've blown it already. You have, you have. <laughs> but, uh, but I've known Carlos for years. Years, but it's nice to meet you. It's and lovely to meet the you. The first thing you said is that you're a red. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. And, and you, you're one of you're kind of for a lot of people of my vintage who probably jumped on the Liverpool bandwagon because that's what we got exposure to. And we've talked about this a fair bit mm. on this show back in the kind of mid to late seventies. We got a lot of Liverpool coming back in, and you played your first game for them, sort of in that in that phase. Um, we were just we were force fed Liverpool, and uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful diet that we were we were given access to. Well, it, it kind of is because it's, it's the world game. And, and remember back then, if you played soccer, you're either a wog or a puff. As, <laughs> as, 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 and I was actually neither. Uh, I was just too skinny to, uh, to play Aussie rules or rugby. So, yeah. so I, I took to the game and uh, it was kind of un- un-Australian back then. Mm. You literally, no doubt. there was a stigma against it if you played soccer. Um, now it's just the reverse. It's trendy, it's cool, it's... Uh, it's what you do. But back then, you know, it was like, well, obviously you're not manly enough to play a proper game. <laughs> yeah, true. And I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, Craig, we had this enthralling 45 minutes and it was by accident that we f- sort of stumbled on this. Of course, we're all, uh, you know, glued to the TV with the big match in the 70s that really introduced us to, the, to, to football on TV in the country. It's the only thing we used to get. It was probably 55 minutes every Wednesday night, black and white. It was only the London clubs, but every now and again we'd get... You know, Liverpool playing, you know, Arsenal or Highbury or whatever. And we started talking about some of the grounds. And I remember Wolverhampton Wanderers and, and Molyneux, the old Molyneux. And, of course, there's Highbury, the old Highbury. And one, one place that always seemed to be wet and muddy, almost like a, a, a bog, was the baseball ground for Derby. Did you play during that, in, in, on those grounds during that time? Yeah. Well, when you think about it, um, you, you blokes are two or three years younger than me. Um, but it was that same television program um, that was on, and there was only one, mm. uh, on a Tuesday night after Till Death Do Us Part. <laughs> then it came on. And I just religiously watched it. And same as you guys, I fell in love with the game. 
that's what did it for me. It was only, and it was black and white, you know, and, uh, and I saw it and it, it captured my imagination. And uh, don't forget, there was no real professional sport back then. Mm. And I said to my mum, who's a school teacher, I said, mum, are you telling me these blokes actually get paid money <laughs> to run around those soggy pitches uh, like the baseball ground? She said, yeah, they're professionals. And my dad, who, who's uh, Australian and very Australian, um, he'd wanted to be a professional soccer player. So, so he went over to Scotland when he was about 20 years old and realised that even though he's a good player here, he was you know, really, really bad when it came to their standards. So he came back. So... So he, he you know, encouraged my um, enthusiasm for the game. Uh, and my mum was the, the headmaster, uh, the headmistress of the local school. So dad said, look, you know, uh, I'd love it for you to have a trial, you know, if, if we could arrange it. And mum said, no way in the world. <laughs> she said, he's going to be a, um, a doctor or, <laughs> a, or an architect. <laughs> so mum had it all planned. So uh as the love of soccer grew a couple of years later uh, you know i was getting up to about uh, 13 14 years old i said to mum i said if i come first in science maths and english <laughs> will you pay for a, f a flight and uh she said sure and anyway um i studied like no kid at it i studied and uh um i actually Came first in science, maths, and uh, I think second in English. But parents were fair to to their word, and they actually sold their house to finance the. Is trip. that right? Yeah, and I'm really sorry. I'm, but it's really emotional. Is your, your mum's no longer? Back. She's no longer with us, Kai. No, no. She, <laughs> she's still here. <laughs> she'll, she'll, she'll beat you up if she <laughs> listens to this. Yeah, she'll, she'll beat you up badly. But uh, no, no, I'm going up to see her. Mum's in Newcastle, um, and. Uh, I think they saw how hard that I studied and worked because I wanted it, you know, yeah, I just yeah. wanted it. And uh, this was before international travel. This was 19, golly, this is 1975. Uh, so it's so a big, big, big deal at this stage. No, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And um, and uh, I uh, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And uh, that, that that they sold their house. And, and that's a sacrifice, oh, you know, so... Blimey. Did you have brothers and sisters as well? Yeah, I had I had two sisters. Uh, Were they one, older or younger one, than you? Older and younger. Yeah, one yeah. one's passed away. She got some real bad cancer, and the other one had a horrific uh, accident, um, a major brain damage, which is why I re retired at twenty seven. And 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 you know, again, sorry for the tears, but the whole thing when I think about it, it's really emotional. So uh, I went over uh, at fifteen. And, and struggled because I was, I was, you know, to paraphrase the famous Jack Charlton, he said, you're the worst footballer I've ever seen in my life. Now, bugger off back to Australia. And mm. uh, that was my trial. So I couldn't go back home because mum and dad had sold the house. Um, and I couldn't stay because Jack Charlton said I was... I was good, yeah. uh, Crap was his word. Yeah. Uh, and he was right. That was the problem. So, um, you know, from, from 15 then... 17 and how I retired, you know, when I hadn't quite realized my potential. So, you know, I, I don't often talk a, a, a about it. In fact, I never talk about it. And somehow Ralph always <laughs> manages to <laughs> wrestle, me, wrestle me back. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I try and keep away from the, the Charlton story, but it, it keeps coming back, you know. So the you're a young man, but was the burden that you were carrying then obvious to you? Like, given what your family had given up for you... 
that must have been was that on you the whole time no no it was yeah. I, I i when charlton had told me to you know to go home but but in the harshest of terms yeah. uh, it wasn't yeah. nicey pie it's a man's game it's 1975 there's no political correctness and he was right i i had to phone my parents and tell them so reverse charges took you know 30 minutes to get on the phone and mum came on all excited Craigus, Craigus, how, how was your big trial and I said well Jack Charlton was there Colin Colin come to the phone Jack Charlton was there you know the famous Jack Charlton what did he say lad what did he said say and, and I said daddy he said I'm one of the finest players he's ever seen he wants me to stay and I hung the phone up and burst into tears again and I said, now what am I going to do? Mm. And um, a, a couple of the, the senior pros, Graham Souness being one of them that was at Middlesbrough, heard about the tongue lashing from Charlton and said, well, look, if you clean our cars and our boots during the day when we're training, we'll give you enough money so that in a year or so you can afford to go back to Australia. So that's what I did. So I hid in a, the Middlesbrough car park every day. Um, and when I'd cleaned the boots and done all the jobs, then I would practice at the four core skills because Charlton was right. I couldn't dribble, couldn't control, couldn't pass and couldn't shoot. So I systematically, because I was a grade A student, you know, and my mum was the teacher headmistress. So I, I set out on a plan and say, well, you know, the, the football and the joy of it was freezing cold, Middlesbrough in the, the middle of winter. Um, but the football is a perfect object. It, it doesn't make mistakes. Mm. And I realised the more you use it, the less mistakes you'd make. So I thought, I'm the problem, not the ball. So I created a, a, a basically a skills measurement test so that every day I could come back and see that I'd actually got either faster or more accurate at those four core skills, control, pass, dribble and shoot. And that's all you need to be a better footballer. So In the uh, car park? Were you doing this in the car park it, or you it, had access to it, the pitch? No, I wasn't allowed with yeah. the players or on the pitch because Charlton had told me to yeah, go. Yeah. So, so I was effectively hiding from him. But as I say, some of the senior players felt sorry for me and were trying to you know, get me enough money to go home. Mm. So, so, you know, I would spend six and seven, eight hours a day with a ball at my feet. But, you know, the first three or four months, I was running around in circles, didn't know what I was doing, didn't know if I was getting better. And see, I see a lot of this in kids today, you know, um, and, and every, every coach has got a different philosophy and a different idea of how to get better. So therefore, um, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you can't control the ball, then you, ca you can't play. If you can't pass the ball, you can't play. Mm. So I was very systematic about this measurement test that I developed. Now, Craig, great. Now, Craig, is that, I mean, I, I, like I said, every time you come to Melbourne, I drag you in. Sit you down for lunch. Never and, again, by the yeah, way. Yeah, no, and I just uh, want to get <laughs> you in here. Does he No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're a firm believer. I mean, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist when it comes to Australian football. I'll, you know, I'm the big cheerleader. I think we can achieve anything. Uh, but you genuinely see a vision that Australia can win a World Cup. And whilst I hope that that may happen one day, and I can, if everything goes right, it may, you know, everything aligns, we may do it. But you're a firm believer. You can see it happening. Is that, does that stem from the way you developed your own game in that methodical way, that data-driven way, that, you know, the, the, you know, that really organised training uh, as, as a young kid? Is that why you can see that happening one day for Australia? Yeah, I see it myself, but I see it in musicians, I see it 
and people that want to be broadcasters, look at you both. You know, you're broadcasters because you wanted it and you worked at your art and your craft and, and, and you, you got rid of the opposition or your competitors. And, and it's life, you know. And, and um, if you practice something often enough, and I, I always said that uh, if you're a surfer, if you're a, you know, a scholar, you know, if you study hard and you have a plan and, and you know what the plan is and you love it and you're passionate, you know, and it's it's in your DNA. Then then you can, you can do anything. And uh, uh, and I th I think that it's it's not working harder. And I, I find a lot of sports people say work hard, leave nothing on the pitch. But you got to work smart. smart yeah, and yeah. more and more and more, it's not just hard. It's smart. And uh, I figured out a plan whereby you know I um you said was it tough? It was tough. And nobody's ever told the story of how tough it was in that car park. And it was freezing. I can't imagine, know. to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no clothes. 1975, no real clothes. I'd be terrified. Well, you get told that by Jack Charlton and mm. all the, the walls yeah. have come crumbling down here. Yeah. I wouldn't know. At that age, you wouldn't have known what to do next. Yeah. Well, um, there was nothing else to do yeah. uh, apart from get better yeah. or, you know, be a crybaby like I just demonstrated uh, <laughs> and go back home and say, hey, mum, you know, and dad, um, sorry, but I let you down. So, so to Carlos's point, there's two things here. One is have local authorities in Australia tapped into your methodology, what you use, the kind of mind space you went into to, to turn the devastation of Charlton into what eventually became the Johnson reality. Have the football authorities here in Australia ever sat down and said, right, I will need to talk to you because this is a template for every kid in Australia who wants to get better at this game? No, no. And um, I have a, a long and ongoing history uh, with the governing bodies of the sport. And, uh, you know, if, if you look at FIFA... Uh, and then you look at uh, down the pyramid, you, you'll see that uh, that you know what the administrators do and how they behave and act and what they actually produce um, is is not what they should, given the importance of the game. Um, and, and another example, and I'm I'm not having a go at the FFA. Look at the English FA. How the devil? Do you get beat by Iceland <laughs> in the European Championship? So two Brexits in a week, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. How do Leicester um, win the Premiership, right, against the might of uh, Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea squads, Liverpool squads, right? And I often say that that you know, if, if you've got a methodology and, and you want it, within every player there's three or four percent of untapped potential. And I've written a few documents and a few papers and uh, they're available for, for people to see. But if you look at Leicester, they found 30 or 40 percent oh, no of untapped potential. Yeah. And then you trace it all back and um, you say it's because their players um, wanted it more because they were confident in themselves and each other, confident in the manager's plan for the, 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 the tactics on the weekend. And, and it's that simple. And everybody's looking for, for sports science and, and coaching genius. So I think a whole myth has been built up around the whole coaching process. And you spoke to any coach in the world, be Barcelona, Real Madrid, Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal, any coach. He'll tell you he's the best coach in the world. And that's why you should actually pay him. Yeah, it's an industry. Right? And of they know something that you don't. Yeah. So there's a myth around coaching, but Jack Charlton, 
was a very good coach, by the way. Was he? So he was right. He was a very honest bloke yeah. as well, and 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 you know, and, and I've spoken to him many times since. Mm-hmm. Uh, brothers Bobby Charlton, famous Bobby Charlton, and uh, he was right. I couldn't play, you know, and and it was kind of like a, a really savage kick up the back backside, but uh, it, it made me think. Okay, well, I want it, so how do I do it? And you know, and and I think that's that's kind of the message. So to answer your question. No, I, th- I think that I might, my simple coaching philosophy, that you can be a better ba- player on a daily basis if you get faster and more accurate at the four skills, I think that's hot to uh, low brow for the clev- clever guys at the <laughs> right. FFA. Right, that sums, that sums up a lot of <laughs> the, the sort of conventional thinking that's going around, I reckon. There's a lot of text love coming through. Luke in Epic. Uh, Luke, Luke in Epping. I've just cancelled a meeting so I can listen. Great, get Carlos. I, I, I would have dropped what I was doing too, but I'm lucky enough to be here with Craig Johnson, who's in the studio. Let, let's whip through a bunch of calls before we get through, uh, get back to the stuff that um, we want to talk about and we're not going to have enough time um pascal's in perth at 18 minutes to three and has uh, joined us hi mate oh g'day guys uh, thanks for taking my call what a pleasure talking to craig hey um craig just a quick one uh, wasn't it in the, the mid to late 80s uh, english clubs were banned from european competition um like were, were you did that frustrate you because liverpool was quite strong in that sort of thing or did you like just have to put it out of your mind or did it eat away at you guys because you would have been a chance no 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 we uh we were actually specifically banned out of Europe because of what happened at the uh, the Highsaw Stadium. Um, that's why we got banned out. And uh, I played in that game, and that was, of all people, Juventus, who, who, who are here in, in Melbourne uh, tonight. I'm going to watch them play tonight. So uh, 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 incredibly frustrated, and, uh, you know, it was the height of hooliganism. And uh, the point being that, that, that the people that knew... Uh, how these things work, how hooligans, and, and it was a right-wing faction. So, so it was Liverpool versus Juventus at, at, in Belgium in the Heysel Stadium, but there was a, a group of right-wing, you know, fascists that that put red and white scarves on and called them Liber- themselves Liverpool fans that actually started that fight, uh, of which 95 people uh, were were killed before the kickoff. So you've got like a Champions League final, team from Italy team from England, Liverpool, two best teams in Europe, and then this, this, this savage fight broke out where, uh, whereby uh, one of the flimsy fences in between um, fell down and fell on the, the Italians, and they, they all, all ran, so there was a, a crush at, at, at the end of a wall, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the game was delayed, um, and we thought, well, there's no way we can play the game, and then the gendarmes came into the dressing room with blood on their faces, and said, if we don't play this game, there's going to be many, many more deaths. How much of what was going on out there did you know about? Well, we were in the tunnel, um, and and the, the Jean Jean kept coming down and kept saying, "Look, there's there's don't go up there. There's three or four dead. You know, then there's ten dead. Then there's there's twenty dead confirmed." So we thought, you know, we can't play. We can't play. So Bruce and myself, Bruce Grobler, we actually went up to the to the end of the tunnel, uh, and it was all. Um, caged in and fenced in um, because the fans were trying to get into the the various fans uh, into the tunnel so we could see uh, what was happening so we a- we actually saw it and we, we saw then gangs of, uh, of of Italians versus gangs of English all with batons and uh, you know knives and anything you know and, and it was it was a fierce fierce fight 
How, how could you? I mean, you had to play the game, obviously, and I still remember the game. It was we were getting all the stories through the, the TV, but we weren't getting them. We we're just getting bits and pieces, and SBS were were uh, doing the live broadcast or telecast. How could you play after that, Craig? I mean, it seemed, it seemed to, from memory, it seemed very low, um, just almost it, it not was important. Surreal. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't it, important. It, it wasn't important, no. Ralph. Um, I think it was important to play because of what I explained to you. They said that, uh, y- you know, the funny thing is it was it was a really nice day that day um, in Belgium. So the sun was shining. It was the end of a long, hard winter. Uh, and a lot of people had started drinking at lunchtime. And that was a big part of the problem. And, and as we were uh, going around and warming up before the game, we had a couple of um, friends of the players who were, you know, uh, hardcore uh, Liverpool supporters. And they said, there's going to be trouble tonight. And we said, well, how do you know? And they said, well, look at that fence. It's nothing more than chicken wire. And they said, look at that fence. And they said, and there's a lot of people coming to the game that aren't Liverpool supporters. They're, they're, they're right-wing you know, fascists that, mm. that are looking for a fight. Um, so, you know, uh, so we'd sort of had an inkling, but we'd never realised. Um, now, now, again, just to explain to you, how, how this was the height of hooliganism, and, 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 and now it's, it's almost... You know, being eradicated. I know the Euros. There was a there was a bit yeah. of an uprising yeah. from 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 areas. But I, uh, my wife, I wouldn't let her go. Right. You know, um, and I said, no, you're not. You're not going. I'm too worried about you going to the game. So, so to, to answer your question, back to uh, no, we didn't want to play the game. We we kind of had to play the game, uh, and it was surreal. And the weirdest experience I've ever had in my life. I've got to ask you this question as a follow-up to that. And I apologise if I'm coming across a question from one of the callers. But you obviously carry Liverpool deep in your heart. And you'd finished playing by the time Hillsborough happened. But we know that justice came to those people in in a form um, this year, last year. Yeah. This year. How How did you feel for those people who had felt so unjustly treated for so long? Well... I knew how unjustly treated they were. I actually knew it because mm. um, um, apart from anything else, I'd retired that year uh, and when I heard the news of what had happened at the semi-final, that's what you're talking about, mm. of, uh, of the FA Cup against Nottingham Forest at the Hillsborough ground, I, I went back um, because uh, by that time I was working with Channel 9, Wide World of Sports, uh, and they said, y- you've got to go and do a story on on what happened and i said no i'm I'm, it's too close to my uh, you know too close i can't do a story so i went back and uh, a lot of the fans liverpool fans were really pleased to see me and they said you got to do the story you got to do the real story now i read in a newspaper right in australia front front page headline there were two girls that faces were contorted and necks were contorted up against the the chicken wire of the Hillsborough fences. I knew those two girls. I knew those two girls. So um, so I went back because I'd actually retired because my sister had suffered a, a, a massive, ma- massive brain damage in an accident um, through a gassing accident in, in Morocco. So she had brain damage through lo- lack of oxygen. Now, most of the casualties oh. and, and, and the deaths were through lack of oxygen from all of the people crushing to get into the ground. 
So a lot of them were in comas, and I, I kind of been dealing with my sister for two years, which is why I retired at 27. So I kind of knew what to do. Um, so um, it was it was uh, it was incredible. Um, I'm, I'm, there's there so much drama, and, and, and again, you talk about Liverpool, you talk about emotion. Mm. I got to be careful here, but um, but um, the club reacted in such a, an amazing way, which is, I think, part of why Liverpool is such a, a big and, and cherished club. Um, and, and they'd set up a, a morgue, and uh, Kenny Dalglish was the manager and Marina his wife. So every day and every night, they welcomed all the, the people that had lost children and all the children had lost parents in, in the disaster. So the, the, the club became like a huge morgue, stroke meeting area, stroke, stroke crematorium, everything was yeah. there. And one day I was go going back to, to my hotel, get some sleep, and the, and the priest came and said, um, there's two people who want to meet you. And you'd, I'd kind of been meeting people all day, and I was kind of on my last legs. And uh, he said, you really have to meet them. Anyway, I did. And uh, it was the two girls in the pictures. They were alive. Oh, they were alive. And because they were against the fence, although their necks were stretched and contorted, they could breathe. So they were the ones that asked me to do the story. Right. So I interviewed them and, uh, and I said, what did it feel like? And, and they said, what? I said, the crush and all of that. And they said, well, we were nearest. We were the first in. That's why we were against the chicken wire. And we kept calling to Bruce, the goalkeeper. I said, what were you calling? They said, are you all right? So they were saying, are you all right? To the goalkeeper? <laughs> oh, like, and, and I said, so hang on a sec. You're actually getting the life squeezed out of you. You're actually dying, right? And you're worried about the bloody goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I said, people won't believe that all around the world. People won't believe that. And, 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 and they said, well, well, that's what we do. We support Liverpool. And I said, okay, you know, well, you know, you're not dead. <laughs> Everybody th around the world thought you were dead, including me, right? I said, what do you want, you know, for yourselves going forward? And they looked at me as if I was stupid, and they said, well, we want to win the next game, of course. <laughs> and, 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 and that for the first time, and I'd been at Liverpool a long, long time, then I realised what football meant and what Liverpool meant to the people, mm. you know? Still does. We could we could speak to you for the rest of the day, Craig. Um, there's a billion things we want to talk to you about. Rob's in Bentley and has jumped on, and, and he's a regular listener, and it's short and sweet, but I, I, we just need to let Rob have a life experience <laughs> here. Good afternoon to you, mate. Yeah, good, good afternoon, Andrew. You know who I follow. Yes, I read. <laughs> now, Craig Johnson, I uh, just want to say thank you for memories as a child, as an adult, uh, my second team is Middlesbrough because of you and Graeme Soonis. I even uh, went from Kenny Douglas to number eight, and I even wore Adidas Predators because of Craig Johnson. <laughs> I just want to say thank you and three words that describe you, fast, tenacious, and a, heart, a big heart. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Thank the, you. The, can you can, have we got time for the Predator Boot story? Can we at least scratch the surface with Craig? The it, it's it's the, maybe tell us about how the Predator Boot came. We've only got a couple got of minutes. We've got two and a half minutes, Craig. Yeah. I know this was not going to do this nearly. Okay, I do the best I can. Um, the whole car park story. I I I was. 
crazy about science and maths when I was growing up. So I figured out how you could, you know, be a better player on a daily basis. When I retired, I was coaching kids in Newcastle and it started to rain. And uh, um, I was explaining to them how you swerve the ball. And I said, kids, it's like a table tennis bat. You know how you swerve, you brush the ball past it. It grips the ball and gives it a bit of top spin, backspin. They said, that's fine, Mr. Johnston, but it's raining. And our boots are made of leather and the ball's slipping off. Our boots aren't made of table tennis bats. And I went... <laughs> light bulb. You're dead right. Light bulb came on. I went home. I got a table tennis bat. I pulled it off. I stuck it on my soccer boot and I wrapped it up with elastic bands. Went back in the backyard, kicked the ball, the polyurethane, and it was a, a, an awful squeak. It squealed like a pig. And I said, that's it. It's gripping the ball like the leather isn't. So then I went and got a patent. Uh, it took me a long, long time. Took it all over the world. Presented it to Adidas, Puma, Nike. They all knocked, knocked it back. Now, the six years later, I'm still out there doing prototypes, testing it. Finally, I took it to uh, to some German players at Bayern Munich in the snow, Franz Beckenbauer, <laughs> Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, Paul Breitner. God. They said something in German. They tried the shoes on. I then took that video back to, to Adidas, who were going bankrupt. They they were trading as insolvent, so the Dazzler family sold the uh, the company for a dollar to the Frenchman Bernard Tapie. So I presented the uh, the video to Tapie, and he said, "This is the future of our company." So they then signed it. After eight years of me trying, became the largest selling soccer shoe in the history of of the world. Lionel Messi, Zinedine Zidane, David brilliant. Beckham, absolutely brilliant. And that was twenty years ago, and I know that because the patents just ran out last <laughs> year. <laughs> Uh, we're going to f- your ch- your job is to yep. somehow get this man's um, knowledge into a usable yep. form for the rest of every young kid that comes through. We're locking him up. Uh, I'm going to go to Newcastle in the next couple of weeks. We're going to lock him up for a, two you, days. And you have to give him and the film time. It. You have to let him into your life again. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I love let him Carlos. <laughs> Believe me, we have a man man romance, whatever it's called. <laughs> Craig, it's, we've scratched the surface. It's been a joy meeting you, and thanks for having a chat to us. It's been... It's been a great experience for all of us. Thank you very much.